The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Standard Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to the Standard Issue podcast. Hannah here right at the top, which always means we're doing things a bit differently this week. It is only a bit differently, for reasons that I won't bore you with. There's not a Bush Telegraph. Although I can do a condensed version in which I say that we were absolutely delighted to see that Aaron Banks lost his Russian libel case against journalist Carol Cadwallader, which is not just great news for her, but for free speech and journalism as a whole. So if you find yourself missing BT, Just imagine Jen and I chanting, Carol, 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 for about 15 minutes. We do, however, have a lot of other great stuff this week. Mickey is talking to writer of the moment, and forget horses, that's straight from Oprah Winfrey's mouth, Layla Motley, to talk about her debut novel. Nightcrawling follows Kiara, an Oakland teen, fighting to keep her life together in any way she can, which leads to her being sexually exploited by the police. It is, upsettingly and unsurprisingly, loosely based on a real-life story. And Layla was just 17 when she wrote it. 17. What the fuck have I been doing with my life? Well, here's what I've been doing with 20 minutes of it. And it was indeed time very well spent, because also this week is a conversation I had with actor Sinead Matthews about The Madhouse, which opens in the West End today and stars Sinead, Bill Pullman and David Harbour. We talk about dysfunctional families, death and money, and why Marsha Falkender, the real-life politician that Sinead plays in The Crown, really deserves a TV drama of her own. In Journey Off the Blocks, Jen's chatting about the ongoing stories of abuse in gymnastics, and it's high fives all round in cycling. And in Rated or Dated, we step up to the plate to watch 1992's A League of Their Own, which also stars Bill Pullman. A show opening in the West End and two mentions in Standard Issue. What a day he's having. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Layla Motley, whose debut novel Nightcrawling, which came out on June the 7th, has just been chosen as the next pick for Oprah Winfrey's book club. Layla, hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Let's start there, shall we? Eh? How did it feel to be Queen Oprah's pick? Uh, so surreal. It was <laughs> unbelievable. The shock of a lifetime to have her pop up on a Zoom that I thought was <laughs> meeting so yeah it was it was definitely so shocking to see her and um, such an uh, overwhelming feeling and I've known for five months now so it's like another wave of it with now having it be out in the world I mean it is one hell of a novel it's big it's huge and I mean in that it covers some you know pretty harrowing important themes including poverty injustice police corruption and brutality prostitution the inescapable cycles people find themselves trapped in I'd like to talk first actually about the police corruption and brutality aspect Mm -hmm. something which quite rightly makes headlines in which we mostly read about as being directed at black men But your Mm -hmm. focus here in Nightcrawling is on the black women and girls who so often, pretty much always, fly under the radar. And while Nightcrawling is a work of fiction, it's very much based in reality, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the beginning of the seed of the novel was inspired by a case that broke in 2016 in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm where a a young girl was sexually abused by many different Bay Area police officers. I was a young teenager at the time and kind of watched all this happen. It consumed our local media. And I remember being just so struck by the way that the media spoke about the case, even in the context in which you would think that it it would be about, you know, what does this mean for young girls, particularly girls of color? The focus 
always led into what are the police officers experiencing? Mm -hmm. What does this mean for the trust between the community and the police department? And I remember thinking like, we should have more stories that we get to control that are in our hands and our heads. So years later, when I was thinking about writing this novel and Kiara came to me, I, I really wanted to make sure that this this book was based inside her full experience and that the the focus was always her first. It does feel like the question that gets missed is, what about her? What about mm-hmm. the woman, the girl right. who's been through this, right? Yeah, absolutely. So police sexual violence is something that is finally making quite a few headlines over here in the UK. And that is to some extent a relief, and not because it's happening, obviously, but because clearly it has always happened and it's good that mm-hmm. light is finally being shone upon it, although you are bang on about the narrative, which still tends to be like, oh, but it's just one bad apple and, well, well how is this going to affect the other police officers instead of what about her? What is that mm-hmm. like in the US now? I mean, there have been very few cases to ever make it to, you know, a courtroom or, or a national newspaper or anything like that. You know, maybe three over the past few decades that have had real media attention. Wow. One being the the case in the Bay Area in 2016. And so the the focus on police sexual violence is, is non-existent and I think that a lot of that is because we uh, we like to think that sexual assault and sexual violence is about sex but when you when you talk about it when, around power mm. around you know people who are in in positions of authority it becomes about more than that it becomes about control definitely you have created Kiara who is an incredibly compelling central character she is all hard edges but with the softest centre and this vulnerability that feels clear enough to the reader that it just adds to the rage around how she is violated by these men, these police officers. Mm -hmm. And in your own words, Nightcrawling is an ode to the precarious and vulnerable world of teenage black girls. Like the the adultification of black girls is is a huge theme that runs throughout Nightcrawling and Kiara Mm -hmm. is constantly asked, told, forced to take on so much more than any 17 year old should. Why was it important to you to tackle this? And how did you go about telling that story? I think we we don't really think as a culture about how we raise Black girls and how the ways in which we socialize Black girls turn into and result in the neglect of Black women. And so I wanted to to show this young girl who very much like, should be experiencing teenage things and having a life of her own has always been forced into a position of caretaking that doesn't allow her to do that. Totally. And, you know, night crawling is really hard hitting, but it's not hard reading. And I think that's so key, right? Because we also get to see Kiara doing exactly that, being a teenager, mm-hmm. having that love, having that joy. And that feels really reflective of the world, too, in that quite often we focus on the pain of women of colour and we don't mm-hmm. celebrate the joys of just, you know, being alive and doing that. And it, it dehumanizes. So I think mm-hmm. like Kiara is so human and I wanted to cuddle her on many occasions. <laughs> I don't think she'd have let me, but I totally wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so important that we recognize that, you know, all of us want more than just our moments of of hurt and all of us have more than just that and part of you know what it means to to be a person a human and to continue to move forward is to to have a spectrum of feelings and emotions that we're able to to experience even in one moment and so I wanted to make sure that the book had that too. There's a line I wanted to read out. Kiara says I have a body and a family that needs me. So I resign to what I have to do to keep us whole back on this blue street. At the moment, there's what feels like a very pervasive narrative around prostitution or sex work in which it's seen as entirely empowering, a woman's choice. But that is not Kiara's story. And it's clearly not the story of so many girls and women who are involved or who are trafficked. Nightcrawling instead explores those shifting sands of choice and control. 
How did you research that and immerse yourself in that world? I did a lot of research about sex work and then we also had a sex worker read the book and provide notes and feedback. I think it's really important to recognize that like sex work is not the thing that makes it dangerous (laughs) in itself. It's the criminalization of sex work that creates conditions in which sex workers are not able to do their jobs without the immediate threat of people who who are completely justified by by the law and by society in their harm so i um i wanted to to like balance both that it is a choice that many many people make and that sex work itself was not the issue here but what happened to kiara was that people the police in particular took advantage of her position knowing that um that it was criminalized already and that no one would protect her from from the police themselves yeah it's that attitude that i guess i mean and it's not specific to sex work but that like if someone makes a choice then they're no longer vulnerable and that's just bullshit of Mm -hmm. course you can still be vulnerable yeah absolutely Okay, I know you must be talking about this all the time, but you wrote the book when you were 17, which is, you know, (laughs) staggering. And you're not quite 20. You're 20 this month, aren't you? Yeah, next week. Next week. Happy birthday for next week. Thank you. Nightcrawling was involved in this huge bidding war. You're billed not just as the next big thing, but as the voice of a generation. And I have got to say, having like torn through Nightcrawling, your voice is clear and it's powerful. I think it's important. And so all of the press bump doesn't feel like hyperbole, which it can be sometimes. But that is a hell of a lot of pressure on your shoulders. Are you feeling yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's it's kind of impossible not to feel it. And what I really appreciated was that when I wrote this book, I didn't expect anyone to ever read it. So the pressure wasn't there. I wasn't thinking about a reader. Um, And I prefer my writing to be, you know, a solitary time where I don't (laughs) experience that pressure. But it's definitely a lot to to put a book out, no matter who you are or how old you are. And then to also have, you know, a lot of people always talking about my age sorry it definitely, <laughs> it's okay I expect it but um it, it definitely shifts it too because then I have to constantly be thinking about my age and it's a it's a bit lonely sometimes to be you know 20 in an industry where very few 20 year olds are ever you know let in you're on a book tour at the moment are you doing that on your own or have you got family members or friends with you or your girlfriend yeah, no. Yeah, my partner's with me, so that has made it a lot easier, definitely. Good, good. Mo is a bit of an inspiration for a character in the book too, right? Yeah, I met her after I had written the first draft, and then in my revisions, I I was fully immersed in her, so I um, definitely think that she influenced parts of the the book in the revision yeah and and I've got to say she's a real bit of the Ali the character is is like the joy the joy in Kiara's life and that really shines through so that's good Mm -hmm. I'm going to still bang on about your age sorry mate but it is your (laughs) debut novel but it's not even your first novel is it No. (laughs) no it's my third novel but I think of the first two as practice novels writing a novel is really difficult and there's not you know as much of a blueprint of how to do it Mm -hmm. and I also think that every writer kind of has to figure it out on their own and I think for me it was really important that I just figure out what does it mean to write something this long form and then to do it again and I would like increase how long the novels were each time um and so I yeah I've written two other ones they won't ever see the light of day <laughs> that was so. gonna be the next question <laughs> yeah I know everyone's like can we see them no <laughs> not, not anytime soon poetry is your first love right that's how you got into writing yes and no I mean technically the first thing I ever wrote was a poem when I was five but um I was writing short stories from when I was six or seven 
And then I I was writing novels at the same time that I was performing poetry. It's just a more solitary experience for me normally to to be writing fiction than it is poetry where I I often am performing it. Mm-hmm. And I guess obviously you've, you've said the word solitary a few times about how you write specifically novels. Yeah. So what do you do to bring yourself out of what I imagine must be a very busy brain a lot of the time? Yes. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's chaotic in there. Um, I I work really hard to like be done with the writing at the end of the day. And I'm not always the best at it, but I try to like do some separation and think of myself outside of my writing. Having hobbies helps just like anything that like allows me to think of myself as a person um, is, is really helpful so that I'm not always consumed by the writing. Do you carry your characters around with you though? I, I think like, cause Kiara is just so fully formed. Like, yeah. I imagine she was quite hard to leave behind. Yeah. Yeah, especially when I was writing the first draft and in revisions, like I don't leave them. Kiara, I was in her head the entire first draft process. And then I like I'm always thinking about the book, especially in revisions where I'm trying to work things out. And, you know, it'll be midnight and I will like shoot up in bed and and be like, oh, there, that's the (laughs) idea. That's what I needed. Um, And so, yeah, no, they don't leave me. I think now I have a little bit more distance. It's been a few years since I wrote the book. So I am able to, like, take some space and I'm on to the next one. So now they're kind of in my head. Well, you skipped me forward a question, but I was going to say, are you already writing your next novel? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm almost halfway through this wow. next one. So I can't say too much about it. It's not done yet, but um, it definitely is a bit of a departure from Nightcrawling. It's set in a very different place with very different characters. But you'll see some of the same themes and I think a lot of people you'll love. Awesome. Exciting. There was a question I wanted to ask you about Oakland because, you know, I'm British. We see Oakland (laughs) a lot on the telly. And you're from (laughs) Oakland, which is home of the Black Panthers. It's a long time centre of politics and activism. And I know you shy away from describing yourself as an activist, but do you think growing up there meant that your writing was always going to have an activist element? I think that I was very aware of the world in which I was living and my place in it from a young age. And I think that also, you know, the the tradition of, of revolution and resistance in the city has definitely like raised me with all of the principles of the Panthers and um, and kind of this this idea that every act that you do, everything that you do matters and has an impact. And, you know, we're all making choices with anything that we that we embark on and I knew that I wanted to like even in my writing make sure that it had an impact in some way and so yeah I I wouldn't describe myself as an activist because I I like have watched organizers and I know everything that goes into that and I'm not doing that but I definitely like I'm I'm at many protests and I am always trying to be as involved as I possibly can. I think that comes through in your writing and while I accept what you're saying I think you're being (laughs) a bit hard on yourself I think there's an activist in there totally Nightcrawling is out now published by Bloomsbury and available in all good bookshops Layla where can people find out what more you're up to you can look me up I guess Uh, and you can follow me at Layla Motley at any social platform and then that's my website too Thank you so much for chatting with me and all of the luck with the rest of the book tour. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by Sinead Matthews. Hello, Sinead. Hi. You're in a new play, The Madhouse, which opens on the 15th of June. Now we're talking on the 10th of June, so that's less than a week away. And you just got back from New York. So thank you for making the time. It's a pleasure. Did you have fun in New York? Yes, yes. That city is extraordinary. I'd been before a few times, never really for work, like as a tourist. But being there working for like four weeks, and I brought my baby as well. So that was, you know, an addition into the mix. 
And it was a lot less stressful than I thought it was going to be. Because my character in the play is only in the second half, it meant that we could do a lot of walking around and seeing lots, because I love being a tourist. It's one of my favorite things. And so I kind of had a bit of like half and half. But I have to say, as much as I love the city, I was really happy to get home and to see some grass and to hear the birds. <laughs> a bit of quiet because that city really gets under your skin after a while. And I think because it was quite warm, there was something quite relentless about it. Mm. And the play is in this world of madness anyway, you know, in this family. And then you step outside into the streets and there's quite a bit of madness out on the streets there. A lot more than London. When I got back to London, London's always felt like a big city to me. And then when I got back at the weekend and I was walking around, I was like, God, this just feels like a massive town. Yeah, I'm actually going to New York in two weeks. I'm taking my nephew. I promised him I'd take him when he finished his GCSEs. And actually, the temperature was one of the things that was in the back of my mind because I really, really hate the hot. Really hate it. I'm not a huge fan either. I just feel stifled by it. A bit like offended by it. Yeah. So let's talk about the Madhouse. Unusually for me talking about a play, I haven't actually seen it. So I'm going to hand over to you to give us yeah. a little brief description of what it is. Yeah, great. It's a new Teresa Rebeck, an American play, and it centres around this family, this dysfunctional family. The father is dying. And at the heart of it, I guess, is the character of Michael. And he has struggled with his mental health for quite some time, ever since he was little. And he has been put in charge of being his primary caregiver because he's dying. And then as soon as the other siblings get wind of this, they all decide to come home. And it's like a big fight <laughs> over the night. There's a brilliant character called Lillian, who is the nurse, the hospice nurse who comes. And she's sort of like the audience's eye into this family because she's come into the world to do her job. But she gets kind of sucked in to the madness of it. Mm. It's to do with family. It's to do with childhood. It's to do with resentment, mental illness. There's a lot in there to unpack in a great way in terms of like family and stuff and also what death does to people mm. what it brings up how it can push you to your limit how you can behave in ways that you didn't think you would necessarily and the character of the father who is dying is this sort of monster like he's described as you're just turning into a toad spewing out bile as the night goes on and you sort of listen to this man talk and how he talks to Michael, his son. David Harbour's playing the son and Bill Pullman's playing the dad. He's quite abusive, verbally abusive, and you just kind of see how this family has got to where they've got to. Mm, yeah. Is. Yeah, I have to say that's, I don't know about you, but my mum is still with us, but my, my dad died. That period around when you pretty much accepted that they are going to die and it can be for some people weeks it can be 24 hours it can just be an hour for some people but it's indescribable because you both have a lot and nothing to do yeah so you just fill the time with these conversations that inevitably go back to these key points that you probably wouldn't be talking about or you certainly shouldn't yeah. be talking about when everyone's sleep deprived everyone's like really high on emotions so yeah it's a really interesting time yeah, yeah. So it does sort of focus on that time and also just that these siblings are so disjointed. The three of them, Michael is the one who never really got away. Whereas my character, Pam, I think what the play does brilliantly is that you see her, you know, she's a ball breaker. She doesn't suffer fools. She comes in. I don't want to give too much away, but she comes in at a point and she's like, you know, I have to sort this out. And she's, you know, giving orders. And she's quite cruel for some of the things that she says. But then as the play goes on, you realise why she's like that. And the fight for the parents' love. Yeah. Who got more attention? Who felt neglected? This all comes up. And also the thing about money. Who gets what? Mm. 
that's one of the upsides of your parents not having anything, I have to say. Is there's not a great deal to scrap over. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I'm an only child, so I probably won't ever have that battle. But I know when my nan passed away and she helped to bring me up and I was very close to her, she didn't even have a will. She didn't have anything, mm. really. So it's just a case of, well, what has she got? And I think she had like a couple of thousand pounds and that was it. And we just sort of shared it. Yeah. And, um buried her with it yeah that's that's what my my granddad left enough money to bury himself and that was it yeah I hear all these stories about people fighting over money I don't understand it because I don't come from money so there's nothing to fight over yeah so I can't you know but this is what this play is also tackling and also who was neglected the most and therefore who deserves more you know is yeah yeah that's interesting concept yeah yeah (laughs) who got love and who got money yeah now, you've mentioned there David Harbour and Bill Pullman. That's quite the cast. I mean, that's going to draw the crowds, clearly. Does that take the pressure off you in your that everyone's here to see Bill Pullman and David Harbour, or, or does it put the pressure on you? There is an element of that. Also, this job came, came my way when I think I just had a baby, and I think he was like four months old or not even for maybe he was three. And um, it came out of the blue. So I sort of saw it as, okay, I need to get back in the saddle. I'd like to make this work. It feels like a good one because there won't be a lot of pressure on me. So it might be quite a good one, you know, to Mm. do because there is that thing of like splitting your focus when you have a baby and you're just in a bubble. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I have to go back to real life again. Yeah. And actually, I guess I thought, well, yeah, that's brilliant because everybody will be going to see them and I can just play this brilliant part yeah. and and just be part of a company, actually. Be part of a company and be in a rehearsal room again yeah. after a couple of years of not. Yeah, I mean, the last couple of years have been so weird anyway. With having a baby on top, that must be even more, more isolating. Yeah, I'd be able also... I'd had a hip replacement three months before I got pregnant. Wow. So COVID for me was like pretty productive. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, now I might go back to work. (laughs) But yeah, and Bill Pullman as well. You know, growing up, Bill Pullman for me was just always in films. Mm. He was part of my childhood. And so now to work with him and play his daughter... That's what I can't really get. Each day I'm like, God, there's Bill Pullman just doing brilliant acting and being amazing and can't quite believe that. (laughs) (laughs) Although, actually, the topic of family dysfunction Mm. is not alien to you because you are in a a film that is a great film about family dysfunction, which is Happy New Year, Colin Bursted. Oh, yeah. How you got through the scenes that you have to get through when Charles Dance is just passed... Well, he's not even passed out. He's just sort of slumped in the corner drunk. I don't know how you did that without laughing. It's so funny, Charles Dance, in that film. He's so good in that. And I think it's surprise. Like, just how much also he really suits that. He has such a grace and such a vulnerability, actually. Because we're used to seeing him as this very strong stoic. But then, I mean, that film in itself was amazing to make. I think we made it in about three weeks. And it was quite a lot of setting up, say, three scenes in a row. Say, if I was in the kitchen doing one of the kitchen scenes, they would have set up a scene in the hallway. And then prior to that scene, a scene in the living room. And then they film it, I call it once. And so you're basically getting ready, like knowing that the camera's going to come in and pick you up at any moment. There was a lot of like devising with that, improvising. And um, some of the scenes were just created, say, on the spot. There's a scene at the end of the film where I have with the caretaker guy that looks after the house and we go back to his little caravan. Yes. And that was made up. You know, Ben was like, "Okay, actually, let's just I think they should have a scene. Actually, just the two of them in the caravan. And. So it just felt very alive and spontaneous doing that. And 
with a cast like that too we had like we did have fun doing that it was hard as well just because there's quite a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah it looked hard I have to say it looked because <laughs> yeah. it's just so much it's so frantic there's so many just short scenes and then you cut to this person you cut to this person and I thought that looks insane but that said you've worked for Mike Lee so I'm guessing you're used to a bit more spontaneity yeah well the thing with Mike is that you have the spontaneity in the rehearsals but when it comes to filming it is heavily scripted and really structured and rehearsed within an inch of its life <laughs> because you know because everything is has been like meticulously thought through when it comes to actually being in front of the camera and so I guess that's the difference you have all that creativity going on but then when you get on set you know exactly what you're doing mm. and and there is a comfort in that yeah I mean he's extraordinary Mike in fact I saw him when I was in New York because the Lincoln Center doing a whole season of his films for like a week and a half or something and he was doing Q&A's so I watched Topsy Turvy again at the cinema and it, and that's just a masterpiece mm. I thought I watched it when it first came out maybe 20 years ago now or something mm. ridiculous <laughs> but watching it again that it, it is a masterpiece. Yeah, he is. He is brilliant. Yeah, really, genuinely brilliant. Now, you play Queen Victoria in that, and I would talk to you about that, but I'm actually way more interested in another real-life woman that you've played, which is Marsha Falkender, who you mm. play in The Crown. Now, I love a historical drama, but I'm not really royalist. So I yeah. kind of have a love-hate relationship with The Crown. My absolute favourite bit of The Crown is all of the Harold Wilson stuff. Partly because Harold Wilson, but also obviously yeah. Jason Watkins is amazing. And he's almost sort of permanently flanked by these two two incredible women. Martin Falkender, who's played by you, and Barbara yeah. Castle, who's played by Lorraine Ashbourne. Now, neither of you have a particular amount of dialogue, but every single thing you say is just chef's kiss beautiful, including you have an incredible scene in which your character basically tears Harold Wilson a new arsehole. Now, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that that's probably what you had to go into an audition and do, that scene. Yeah, and actually, for some of the auditions, they, if I remember rightly, one of them, there was, like, another scene, but I think that when it came to filming, it was given to, like, an, um, like another character. So sometimes they just like to give you scenes that aren't necessarily for the character that right. will end up, but just to see, like, a variation. And But that scene... I loved doing it. I loved her. I loved all the research because not many people knew about her and also didn't realise the effect that she had on the Labour Party and how intimidating she was to the men. She was sort of like Maggie Thatcher before Maggie Thatcher got there, but a good, a good guy. <laughs> yes. She, you know, she was genuinely for the people. I met up with an MP that was, in fact, me and Jason had lunch with an MP who was in the Labour Party at the time and had first-hand stories. And even those first-hand stories, I have to say, were very biased and a bit judgmental. You know, she had the nickname of Dragon at the Gate because you had to get past her to get to Harold. And there was all this rumours going around that there was something going on with her and Harold. And there were all these brilliant stories or quotes of hers and anyway she was extraordinary her son actually wrote to me when it aired he sent me a just a message on social media saying I just want to thank you for doing a fair and poignant portrayal of her because she got a lot of stick when oh, she was lovely. alive and I think that was like oh okay I did a good job there because her son recognized her mm. Because she was this incredible woman, like when it aired, Vanity Fair over in America were like, who is this woman and why don't we know about her? And she sort of was brought back to life again. But unfortunately, she passed away in February. And I think it was aired maybe six months later. Mm. And I would have loved her to have been around to see this newfound appreciation in a new age where women, strong women, are celebrated. Mm. Well, if anybody ever gets around to making something about her, which they should, and Barbara Castle, I mean, you and Lorraine, absolute shoo-ins. You're both incredible in it. Well, we were thinking, God, there has to be like a spin-off mm. for Harry 
last year just because we didn't even you know because you have to fit it into into what the crown is but we didn't even touch upon half of what is there yeah 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 that's what I mean about me having a love-hate relationship with the crown I'm like you're talking about the wrong bit (laughs) yes yeah but it was great and yeah I'm really proud to you know portrayed her and yeah now something more recently that people will might have seen you in is hull raisers now that was a job where you got to sit in a dressing gown and spray cream directly into your mouth. I mean, I'm guessing that is the dream job if you were going to write one down. I mean, I tell you what, it was a bit of a dream job, the whole thing. I think just the writing was so funny and so I felt really fresh. And also set in Hull, following these working class women they're enjoying their lives. Yes, they live up north, but they're having a great time. It's that thing of like, it's not grim up north. It's actually, you know, Hull is a great city and people are enjoying their lives and having a great time. And yeah, we did have a good time. And yeah, I got to wear my dressing gown, kick ass and spray cream into my mouth. Although I was pregnant doing it. And so it kept making me feel a bit sick. <laughs> I was really having to like mind over matter, mind over matter. You're really having this Sinead. Now swallow it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I can't have it in the house because if I do one shake of it, the cats go insane and they're not I allowed like- it, but they're, they're desperately like clawing at the fridge to get in if they know it's in there. So I, I can't have it in the house. That's so funny. Now, The Madhouse is on until the 4th of September. I I cannot wait to see it. Uh, Please come. Thank you so much for your time, Sinead. This has been great. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's been great talking to you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we discuss all things women's sport. I know I usually open with some sports-specific bants or a terrible pun, but it doesn't seem appropriate when I'm opening proceedings with quite an unpleasant story, actually, I'm afraid. I've spoken before on the podcast about allegations of abuse made specifically within the sport of gymnastics, but also more generally in sport. On this occasion, I feel like congratulations is the wrong word, really. But, you know, I am glad to say that former elite gymnast Eloise Jatishki has become the first to win a civil case against the sport's UK governing body, British Gymnastics, for abuse that she experienced at the hands of one of her former coaches, Andrew Griffiths. I'm not at all pleased, however, to report that in the same month, and crucially after British Gymnastics admitted liability to Jatishki, Griffiths went to the World Acrobatic Championships anyway as one of their coaches. He has since cancelled his membership and is no longer permitted to coach, the BBC reported. But still, fucking hell. But it doesn't end there because of course it doesn't. It transpires that Griffiths had previously served a suspension by British Gymnastics for inappropriate practices but was allowed to coach again after successfully appealing. Among the accusations made by Jatishki, she alleges that while Griffiths coached her at Heathrow Gymnastics Club or she was between the ages of 10 and 14, she was subjected to inappropriate weight management techniques, which included a diet of between 800 and 1200 calories a day, bearing in mind the recommended calorific consumption for a normal teenage girl, so I mean not an elite athlete, is between 2,000 and 2,500 calories. Well, you can do the maths. The coach would also, she said, scream and shout at girls whose weight did not meet his expectations after they had been publicly weighed in front of their peers. Jatishki was, she says, terrified, anxious and physically exhausted by the experience. They're horrible, horrible stories coming out of the sport and Jatishki is by no means alone here. The number of accusations that have been made actually led Sport England and UK Sport to co-commission a report by Anne White QC into the abuse, which has concluded and is due to be published soon. Of course, I'll be sure to update you when it does. 
some good news now because, you know, we need it. Great Britain will play in this year's Billie Jean King Cup finals, despite having been defeated by the Czech Republic in April. And that's after Glasgow was named the host city. Hurrah, we shall still go to the ball after all. The event will take place at the city's Emirates Arena between November 8th and 13th. And look, I'm not going to lie to you, we probably won't win it, but I'd expect to see some really decent names there. So if tennis is your thing, I'd start looking at ticket options. A couple of quick congratulations in the sport of cycling. Firstly, to Elisa Longo-Borghini, who won the women's tour at the weekend by just a second after finishing the sixth and final stage in third place. The general standings at the end of the tour are interesting. You'd normally expect to see Lizzie Deegan up there, but she's currently sitting out the season due to pregnancy. But there are no other Brits. Also, no Dutch representation, which we are not used to seeing in women's road cycling. Congratulations to our very own Bethany Shriver, however, last year's Tokyo 2020 gold medalist who has taken home a bronze at the BMX Racing World Cup, less than half a second behind silver medalist Laura Smolders. There's the Dutch representation we were looking for. Okay, that's all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film which had plenty of 1940s <laughs> America voice did we watch this week? Well, Hannah, this week we watched 1992's A League of Their Own, a fictional story based on true events or at least a genuine all-American girls professional baseball league, which was set up during the Second World War to entertain the masses slash keep the dollar dollar bill yoles rolling in while the men were away fighting. It's got a pretty mega cast. Gina Davis, Tom Hanks, Madonna, Rosie O'Donnell, Laurie Petty, Bill Pullman. Oh, who would have thought Bill Pullman would be so big in this week's <laughs> podcast? OK, some of those stars have waned a little bit in the intervening years. But for any youngsters listening, and I'm sure we do have lots of youngsters listening to us, <laughs> Let me tell you that in 1992, that was a huge cast. The film was directed by Penny Marshall, who, from her IMDb, has a pretty random back catalogue, but again made some big films in the late 80s slash early 90s. And by big, I literally mean big, as in the <laughs> Tom Hanks classic, as well as Awakenings and Danny DeVito classic Renaissance Man. Big Tom Hanks is a problematic classic. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, I mean, I love it, it, but I really shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think they'd make that film if the genders were reversed. Whatever. Or indeed now. Or indeed now, quite. So the descriptions I've seen of this film pitch it, no pun intended, as a comedy drama. I know what you're thinking: comedy, history, sport. Gina Davis. This is right up our street, right? Well, we'll see. That comedy description is doing quite a lot of heavy lifting here. I don't know, Jen, I really laughed when the guy went, girls playing <laughs> baseball. So the film starts in the present day as Dottie Hinson, played by Davis, is about to go to an event at the Baseball Hall of Fame, honouring the women who participated in said All-American Girls League. Before we're told the story of Dottie in flashback and her sister Kit Keller, played by Laurie Petty, who are country bumpkins working in a dairy in Oregon. Married Dottie is a simple woman with simple dreams, while little sister Kit is desperate to get away and strike out on her own. When Dottie is scouted for the women's baseball team trial, she's like, nah, mate, I think I'll just stay here with the cows until my husband gets back from Italy. <laughs> We've all done it. But Canny Kit spots a window of opportunity to blag her own slightly inferior ass onto the train and try out with her big sister after she's told that she can try out if her sister does because her sister's, like, well pretty, so they really want her on the team, basically. And in the time-honoured tradition of younger siblings, she gives her big sister shit until she relents. In fairness, it doesn't take her that long. 
led by disgruntled alcoholic former player Jimmy Dugan, played by Hanks, Kit and Dottie are invited to join the Rockford Peaches with a group of women from all walks of life. There's a really sexual one, All the Way May, played by Madonna, Ovs, a funny one, Doris, played by Rosie O'Donnell, an ugly one, a pretty one, an illiterate one, genuinely unsure what the point of that was, uh, and also there's a mum. So that's that's all of women covered. <laughs> the crux of the story really is the friendship and the rivalry of these women forced together by circumstance and indeed family. Kit struggles to free herself from the shadow of her better in inverted commas, but actually like she is just loads better than her. Kit's quite annoying. Anyway, older sister and Dottie struggles to free herself from the expectations of society that were forced upon women of her generation. Will either of them manage? I wonder. <laughs> the film was a big commercial success it made 132 million dollars worldwide from a budget of 40 million dollars it was well received by critics who praised the performances and it has an approval rating of 80 percent on rotten tomatoes which i think is surprisingly high to be honest yeah given that i would say the audience for this is people who don't traditionally go on the internet very much I mean, Hannah, I'm, I am going to ask you <laughs> who the fuck is the audience for this in a minute. <laughs> I think probably my mum. That's Well, that's sort of what I wondered, but I'll tell you what my mum thought of it in a minute. <laughs> Our mate Roger Ebert said he had no idea about the All-American Girls League until watching the film, and neither, in fact, did Marshall, who also served as an exec producer. One of the reasons it was made, apparently, is because she had not heard of it and then she watched a documentary about it. Ebert praised the bittersweet charm of the film. Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian wrote in a review just three months ago that the film still, and I quote, knocks it out of the park. I'm also genuinely surprised by this. I just realised they can hear none of the facial expressions that I've been doing in the last five minutes. <laughs> right, okay. This film was written by Babalu Mandel, not his real name. I think he's actually called Mark. And uh, Lowell Gantz, who wrote a film I genuinely love, 1989's Parenthood. Have you seen that, Hannah? Oh, man, I love that film. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. properly it's yeah. a well-observed, charming lol fest, right? Yeah, and star-studded. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So... Hannah, I'm going to be honest with the listener. This was your idea. You were being helpful because I was off and also <laughs> I had slash have COVID. And at first glance, as I said earlier, this should be right up our street. Yeah. I actually watched it a bunch of times before because I was a big Madonna fan around this time. But I know that you have not watched it before. No. I'm quite nostalgic for those days as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying to know what you made of it. It's really formulaic, like crazy mm. formulaic yeah. you know, from the start where we have this old woman who's really unsympathetic and I don't like, who <laughs> who like just gets sort of jostled out of her house by her daughter who doesn't want her anymore. Um, <laughs> and, and then she just like looks nostalgically and we get a flashback to like her young life. And I just, so it's really formulaic in the way it's sort of structured and, and all of that stuff. I, I just thought it was really boring, which is surprising because it's about women doing something inspirational. And, and I don't know, I don't, it, I just didn't feel inspired at any point. And of course it's sexist as hell, but it's because, you know, that's what they endured. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have any kind of kickback to it, which it undoubtedly would have now, whether that would be historically inaccurate to say that, you know, they were all proto-feminists because they clearly aren't. It might have been nice just to have one proto-feminist amongst them because there isn't one. But I think the key problem is that it's about baseball. And we just don't get baseball in this country. I mean, I understand how it's played and I, you know, I get the rules of it and all of that stuff. But it holds such a unique position in American life that I think the wave of of just love towards baseball that America gets. I mean, it's its national sport, you know, much as like American football is and, and basketball are way sort of flashier and like bigger bucks. It is its national sport. That without that wave of nostalgia for someone who isn't an American, you just look at it and just think, I don't get it. I don't, I don't feel warm. I don't feel warm to this film at all. 
So I've been to a baseball match. I went to a baseball match in Cuba because weirdly they're like really, really into baseball in Cuba. Yeah, because they hate the American big dogs. <laughs> and um, it's fucking boring. It's a really boring sport to watch. But I can get behind a good sporting montage really like regardless and this is i don't think they deploy the use of the sporting montage in the way they should there's too much fucking baseball in it that's what my mum said she didn't say fucking but she said there's too much baseball in it and i agree with her they could have cut a lot of that in the edit they needed more montages so i agree with you on that but i actually think i think that film could have been about the dick kerr ladies for example which is the football team that everyone talks about. One of the teams that played here when the men were at war. So this was a thing that happened across a a bunch of different sports in a bunch of Mm. different countries. It wasn't just baseball in the US. It could have been about them. And I think it still would have been boring because there was too much sport in it, she says, as someone who enjoys sport. And I also think that the writing was schmaltzy as Fuck. Yeah, it, it's already hallmark. Because it's interesting, because I'm not a big fan of sport, but as you know, I absolutely love a sports drama. Mm. Right? Because sport is the analogy for something else in it. Mm. Yeah, Moneyball's a good film about baseball. And it is smaltzy, but it doesn't feel it in the same way. There's a great scene where Jonah Hill shows Brad Pitt this, this, this thing that's happened in which this really sort of roly-poly guy who's just like a catcher has to go on and play as a as a uh, you know as a batsman at the end presumably they never thought they'd get to him and then they did and he has to just get to second base and or whatever and they've won and he hits it and he falls over and he's like crawling on the ground to try and reach like the base and it's all really mortifying but what he doesn't realize is that when he hit it he hit a home run right so Jared Hill tells Brad Pitt this story as like an anecdote like and at the end Brad Pitt goes how can you not love the romance of baseball? Or how can you not say that baseball's romantic or whatever? But this mm. film doesn't even get that bit right. It doesn't even no. get why America loves baseball. It just is a load of just guys in the, like I say, in 1940s voices in the crowd shouting, you know, women can't hit balls. <laughs> and it just, it's just really, I don't know, aggravating. <laughs> I, I just, and I don't really like anyone in it. In fact, no. my favourite bit in it is just the utter disdain with which Tom Hanks looks at that kid, which I actually do find quite funny, how much yeah. he hates that kid. But the rest of it is just, I don't know, there's no one that I'm really behind. I think some of the performances, and this is the thing that they that it was sort of praised for by critics, I think some of the performances are quite good. I was expecting to think Madonna was shit in it, but I actually think she was okay in it. She was okay. The bit that she's brilliant <laughs> at... Is like that whole Lindy Hop dancing thing. But of course, because she's Madonna. Do you know what I mean? Of course she can do that bit. Yeah. The acting I was slightly more ambivalent about. I did say to my mum, because my mum watches Strictly, what's what's that dance, mum? Is it a, is it like a, a jitterbug or something? And she said, I don't know, but it's very energetic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Len is back. I, what do you think about Tom Hanks in it? Sorry to talk about like the the only man in it basically was not the only man but the the only one who really does anything. Yeah, I mean, I thought like I said, I thought it was funny that he hated the kid and that he wasn't really interested and all of that stuff. And then they try and sort of shoehorn this we get each other thing mm. between him and Gina Davis's character when in fact, yeah, I just thought it was a bit ridiculous. I mean, and bits of it were totally ridiculous, like when she stands up and she pulls up the mask and it's her. Yeah. And you're like, he would have noticed you in the changing room. I mean, yeah. I think he's like not as pissed as he used to be now. I think she would have been told to fuck off as well, to be honest. Yeah. I think they would have been like, well, you don't get to like bugger off for most of this series and then just come back at the end to take all the glory, mm. potentially. Also, it annoyed me that her sister knocked her over and she did it on purpose. And I was like, that can't be allowed, can it? That's out of order. Well, she did there. Surely that can't be allowed. Anyway, I don't know enough about baseball to be able to answer that question, but it irritated me immensely. Talking of knocking her over, what I will say, the one thing that I thought that they did quite well or they showed quite well is that, you know, and perhaps they only did it so they could show pictures of their legs and ass, but they them being absolutely covered in bruises, I thought there was one bit where where Gina Davis's entire like thigh has got this massive bruise down it, mm. and I think yeah, little little touches like that 
that made it seem slightly more they were actually playing baseball rather than this was, you I know. Think, like the physicality of it actually was quite a good thing, I guess, as an extension of what you've said. I think like, you know, the fact that they are sort of running around and they're sliding and they're, you know, they're yeah. d- catching and, you know, throwing really hard and, and all of that sort of stuff. To like demonstrate why it was it. shocking. Yeah, exactly. In the 40s that women, yeah. Yeah, I think, I actually think that is quite good. And, and that is something that still probably would jar to a lot of people who are not necessarily familiar with watching women's sport whatever that sport may be so I did actually think that was quite quite a good thing so that was the question I wanted to ask you which I've we've already sort of touched on I do think it is horribly sentimental like Mm. way more than I could bear and I was absolutely dying to know what you made of that and my question was who is the audience for this because it's as you say it's it's your mum it's maybe my mum except my mum was like nah mate there's too much baseball in this and there is a lot of baseball in it for maybe an audience that does not like sport particularly yeah I felt like where it was at its most sentimental when it was dealing with them as old ladies yes you know where and it felt like there was soft focus and plinky plonky music that were like aren't old ladies angels like that basically and then then they were like no it's still me and you were like oh yeah it was like they were it was like a some sort of weird reminder that old people are papal and yeah I mean I feel like I'm the person who thinks that and you're the person that thinks you need to like show them as these like great dignified swans Mm. (laughs) sort of I, I felt that that bit was kind of that the sentimentalness there was really irritating i felt like the sentimentalness amongst in the 1940s was slightly more forgivable given that it was a particularly said well you're talking about a nation that's at war mm. so sentiment would be amped up in, during that period mm. anyway but yeah what about you uh, yeah it is sort of unbearable when when they're dealing with the old ladies because <laughs> just i wish i could put into words what I am currently experiencing in my mind which is just like a hundred old women sort of going like just buzzing just buzzing at a frequency that that is (laughs) actually unbearable (laughs) that's kind of what it was but I didn't answer your question so I suppose actually what I would say is although that I would say that should be my mum because She's interested in in historical dramas, which essentially mm. this is, you know, and women's stuff, which is essentially what this is. Yeah. And she knows who the people in it are. She knows who Rosie O'Donnell is and, you know, Tom Hanks and yeah. that. Actually, my mum, she would dislike that old lady thing too. Yeah. She would just be like, why are they like talking about them all like they're, you know, made of glass? <laughs> <laughs> and why are they buzzing at a frequency that is intolerable? Why? <laughs> What I will say about that, the old ladies is that the old lady that plays Gina Davis and the old lady that plays Rosie O'Donnell, that casting agent deserves like a massive round of applause because they were oh, spot yeah. on. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, actually, I did think that. I thought Madonna. I, I thought that all the way May was pretty good as well. I wondered actually in, in the beginning bit, had they like dubbed her with Gina Davis's voice? I don't know. She just, I just, I don't know what it was. I just really didn't like her as an old lady. She just seemed really snotty. Just, and just dispensed wisdom to her grandchildren in that. Like I say that, just like, he's only little. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Although it all became clear, didn't it? It all became clear. Obviously. Why, yeah. Why she did that. You know what really pissed me off? Uh, I can't remember the character's name, but the guy who they're like oh well you kept it all going during the war so they were like you you cut the tape only man in this room you be the one yeah. to cut the tape and I was like okay yeah sure get the only guy in the room to cut the tape and take all of the credit for their glory yeah. wicked that irritated me I do want to give it credit for like a couple of things though you know it did have a couple of things that made me laugh Tom Hanks is pretty good in it and I like that storyline I think Laurie Petty is good in it. And when they're running for the train, how she is running in that shot is like proper comedy gold. It's just so ludicrous. Like her legs come right up at the side and at the back as she like kicks up when she <laughs> runs. And she deserves a prize for that because she runs quite a long way like that. 
but yeah it was mostly a big fat no thank you from me i wouldn't say i had a terrible time watching it and i also think like yeah although weirdly when i was nine apparently i was the audience for it but like... i mean we haven't considered that little girls can just look at real sports women now can't they they don't need to be they can inspired, now but by... in 1992 would have been slim pickings wouldn't it mm, yeah so yeah i mean i think like I, I i do remember enjoying it as a youngster and i do remember finding it funnier than i did and like more moving than I did when I watched it. So I can't say I found it particularly moving at all watching it this time round. But, you know, I don't think I am the audience for it. And and actually, that's fine. I don't, you know, not everything has to be for me. But to be okay. honest, Jen, if if a woman in their late 30s <laughs> and a woman in her mid 40s. Yeah, who both like sports films. <laughs> who both like sports films, who basically both got nothing to do on a Sunday afternoon except staying because they're hiding from COVID. Yeah. Can't find something to enjoy that it has truly, truly failed. Yeah. It's probably time to ask the immortal question because I don't think it's dated particularly. I don't think there's anything offensive in it. Obviously, it's like it's an historical drama. So. Yeah. It's dated in that respect. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I don't think it's rated. <laughs> no, I agree. We're going to have to come up with a, another word. Uh, home plated. No, that sounds like it's good, doesn't it? Um, for the want of a better word, then I'm going to say dated because I can't say rated. For the arbitrary categories we have set in this segment, it is going to be a dated from me as well. I'm yeah. afraid a league of their own. Sorry. I, 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 I really like what you tried to do, but yeah. Yeah. Who is it next? Ten points for effort. Yeah. <laughs> Ten might be a bit rich. Uh, nine. Nine points for effort. Six and a half points. <laughs> <laughs> next week, it's Mickey's pick, and we're going to be watching Face Off, which I've also never seen. Oh, God, I don't want to watch that. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.